Well, one man has said this, that there are two things that God values above everything else in this world. And that is, number one, his truth, and number two, his church. Stop and think of that. Two things that God values more than anything in this world, his truth, which is given to us in his word, and his church, which is to be the proclaimer of that word. And what I want to do this morning, as I said before, is I want to direct your attention to this passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And I want to set out the particular truth that is found in this passage. And the truth is essentially this. It is as follows. That the church is that institution ordained of God to be the pillar and ground of that truth that the Son of God has become man in order to save and sanctify sinners. Somewhat involved, but I want to say it again. Please listen. The church is that institution ordained of God to be the pillar and ground of that particular truth that the Son of God has become man in order to save and to sanctify sinners. This is, as I said before, is really the thrust of this passage of Scripture. It is the fact that God has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And the real thing that Paul is emphasizing here is that the church is to be that institution, that that society of people that upholds this particular truth. God come into the world. God come into the world to save and to sanctify sinners. And so what I want to do is I want to work through this passage of Scripture and lay before you this very truth. And I want you to have something of an appreciation for this truth even before we begin. This passage of Scripture in one way will kind of remind us of what we learned last week. Remember last week we took a look at that passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 20 verse 21 where we set forth the twin pillars of gospel preaching. And you remember what we said about that passage of Scripture? That in Acts chapter 20 verse 21 we have the two essential elements of all true gospel preaching. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you may remember that I said that apart from those two truths, whatever else may be happening, if they are absent, gospel preaching is not present. Gospel preaching is dependent upon the twin truths of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what we said about repentance. Repentance is that whole act of the soul being acted upon by God, whereby the will, the intellect, and the volition are all now turning away from sin and turning toward God. You remember what we said about faith. Faith in its very simple terms is saying amen to the promise of God. God promises to save sinners. You understand that you are a sinner and you respond to that by faith. You say amen. Yes, God saved me through Jesus Christ. So faith and repentance or repentance and faith as the twin pillars of gospel preaching. Well, there's a sense in which what we're going to take a look at today is going to develop that theme. And as I said last week, apart from repentance and faith, no true preaching takes place. No true gospel preaching takes place. So apart from the lifting up and the proclaiming of Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh come to save sinners. Apart from that, a church, no matter what it claims to be, if it does not proclaim that, is no true church. You have to understand that. That the church is not just a gathering of religiously minded people. A church, a true church, is a gathering of those people who have been given and entrusted and proclaimed the very message that God has declared. And that message is summed up in this passage of Scripture in a very beautiful way. As a matter of fact, many of the commentators, when they look at this passage of Scripture, verse 16, that they see something of the evidence of what might be a hymn, 
an ancient hymn, something that what might be something of a creedal expression of the Christian faith. Whatever it is, whether it is a hymn or a creedal expression, it certainly is combining in six statements really all the essential elements of the humiliation and then the exaltation of Jesus Christ in order to save and to sanctify sinners. It sets it before us in this very kind of in this very kind of memorable phrase, the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. Well, what we're going to see is that this little phrase, the mystery of godliness, we, if we can put it this way, and I hesitate to say it this way, but I'm going to, the mystery of godliness might be called the secret of true piety. The secret of true godliness. And in one sense, the secret of true piety is no secret at all because it's been revealed. We'll get into this is the whole idea of, a, of what a mystery is in Scripture. A mystery in Scripture isn't that which befuddles the mind. A mystery in Scripture is that which is unknown apart from the revelation that God has given. Well, what God has revealed in the Scripture is that the, is that the truth or the key to true piety or holiness is all bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and my behalf. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is this, that your church exists as a pillar and as a foundation on top of which is that message that I've just described to you. God come into the world to save and sanctify sinners. And if a church proclaims or if a church fails to proclaim that, then in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 12, then indeed the foundations are being destroyed. And isn't it a sad thing in our day to see so-called churches proclaiming nothing of this? To see so-called churches proclaiming nothing by way of repentance and faith. To see so-called churches allowing all kinds, not only allowing, but sanctioning sin in, within, the, very, within the, the, the body of the people. It is a shame. And as I said before, whatever else it may be by way of a gathering of religious people, it is not the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is identifiable by its doctrine. The church of Jesus Christ is identifiable by its godliness. And the key to godliness is found in this passage of Scripture. The key to the function of the church is found in this passage of Scripture. And so because of this, by the grace of God, I want to open up this passage of Scripture to you. I want you to see again what Paul means by way of when he says to Timothy how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. He's going to explain something about the nature of the church. We'll take a look at that. We're going to see or we're going to ask ourselves the question, what does Paul mean when he says that the church is the pillar and, and foundation uh, or, or the pillar and ground of truth? What does Paul mean by that? We're going to see something of the function of the church that speaks of the church's function. What does the church do? It upholds the truth. The church isn't the source of the truth, but the church upholds the truth. We'll take a look at that. And then thirdly, we're going to see the message of the church. What is the message of the church? Well, in two words, the message of the church is Jesus, is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ come into the world again to save sinners. So we'll work through this passage of Scripture once again with the emphasis on this following point. The church is that institution ordained of God to be the pillar and ground of that truth that the Son of God has become man in order to save and to sanctify. And we will develop this doctrine again under the three points. Number one, we will see the nature of the church. Number two, we will see the function of the church. And number three, we will see the message of the church. Well, let's take a look then at this passage of Scripture. Notice what we have here in verse 14. 
These things I read unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Well, again, I think we're all familiar with this passage, or excuse me, with this uh, epistle of uh, 1 Timothy. We know that Timothy was, excuse me, that Paul was writing to the young man Timothy, and he was giving him instruction on how the church was to be established. As a, as a matter of fact, if you go back to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 3, what you will see is that Paul purposely left uh, Timothy in the city of Ephesus in order to set up the work of the church. Notice what Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus... When I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Paul had left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to establish the church, to make sure that error would not creep in, to establish the church by way of its officers, to establish the church by way of its conduct. And it's kind of interesting that we find ourselves here in Ephesus again. We were in Ephesus last week, weren't we? And again, you remember how that Paul gathered the church at Ephesus. And what we are seeing here is that the city of Ephesus, again, was, was very significant in the ministry of Paul. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that some of the things that Paul says by way of the nature of the church, the pillar and the ground of truth is going to, is, is going to uh, convey something of the temple that was very famous in the city of Ephesus at that time. When Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, there is something and there's a sense in which Paul is, is kind of saying that against what was said in Acts chapter 19 by the Ephesians when the gospel was first being preached and they were rejecting the gospel message and they were rejecting Paul and the whole city of Ephesus cried out, you might remember, great is, uh, is, is Diana of the Ephesians. And so Paul contrasts that. No, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the key of piety. Great is that theme which produces true moral transformation in the life. And these are the things that Paul was bringing out here. And so again, Paul says here then, Timothy, I want you to know how you ought to conduct yourself <coughs> excuse me, in the house of God. Now this, gives us, this brings us to a very interesting uh, point, a very, a very interesting first point, excuse me. <coughs> and that is essentially this, that there is a proper conduct in the house of God. Paul writes these things to Timothy that, he, Timothy that he might know how to conduct himself in the house of God. And this idea of, the, of how to conduct himself has everything to do with the manner of living. Has everything to do with the way we carry ourselves. Has everything to do with the way we interact with one another. Has everything to do with the way we walk before God in a place that he is sanctified. You see, there is a sense in which you come to this place on a Lord's Day morning and in this hour you have the opportunity to do what you have no opportunity to do throughout all the week and that is the join in the public worship of God. This hour doesn't have to look like any other hour throughout your week. You don't have to bring the other hours of the week into this, into this hour. You can sanctify this hour and in this hour you can set apart the Lord as holy. What a wonderful way to consider the worship of God. What a wonderful way to look forward to what you do on this Sunday morning. Others may ask you the question, why would you go there on a Sunday? And in your heart, you know why you come in here. Because in this place, by the grace of God, God is worshipped. His word is opened up. His spirit moves among us. His son is precious to us. All these things. And so again, this is how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God. 
That's why when we come in, we ask that we, that we conduct ourselves with a certain kind of proportion to what we're doing. Again, we understand that the, the something of the joy, and I, and I have to admit, I do like seeing and hearing kids in, in, in services. But again, it's just not a free-for-all in here, is it? We just don't come in and lounge around. No, why? Because there's a way in which we have to conduct ourselves in the house of God. There's another thing that we need to understand here that in one sense that Paul isn't just talking about the house of God by way of the physical structure of the church. His vision is larger than that, if I can put it that way. He's really saying that we might not know how to conduct ourselves in literally the household of God. In the household of God, what's the difference between a house and a household? It's kind of like the difference that we would talk about when we say a house and a home. A house is kind of like where you live. A home is where you interact with the family, we might say. And this idea of a household has to do with all the relationships that take place between one another in a family setting. The mother and the father interacting with one another as they ought. The children, the same thing. And so again, what Paul is saying is that he is writing these things to Timothy, that in the church we might know how to conduct ourselves in a right and proper manner. That the minister might know how to conduct himself. That the people of God might know how to conduct themselves. That in all of our relationships, not just in this building, but particularly in this building, but in all of our relationships one with another, we know how to conduct ourselves. That's why Paul... Back in the second chapter, notice what he says about the second chapter. Uh, Excuse me, in in the second chapter, he says this. I exhort, therefore, first of all, supplication, prayers, intercession, and the giving of things be made for all men. Why, Why is he saying this? Because that's the function. That's the way we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. We are to be a place where prayer is made for all persons, all types of persons, those in authority, those with no authority. Those who are, who are living the Christian life. Those who we want to see live the Christian life. The church, the household of God, is to be that place where, the Lord, where prayer is made uh, for individuals. And of course, also it's to be that place where the preaching of the word takes place. And we'll get to that shortly. And so again, this is why Paul also, not only in chapter 2, talks about the importance of prayer being made in the household of God. This is why he gives instructions in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, about the, ordi- or about the, or- uh, the uh, ordination of, uh, of elders and deacons. Because there is a certain way in which the church is to be managed. And all these things, again, Paul writes in order that Timothy might know how to conduct himself in the household of God. Brothers and sisters, may we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. But stop and think of what Paul is doing when he makes this kind of assertion. Not this assertion, but when he makes this point. What Paul is doing is this, is he is telling us something about the nature of the church. That's very important for us to understand. That in the very nature of the church, it is familial as much as it is anything else. In the nature of the church, it's not just organizational. In the nature of the church, it is a family. The family of the living God. True brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters on some level that that go even deeper than blood relatives. And many of us know this by way of experience. Yes, we love our physical uh, uh, brothers and sisters. But there is something about that one with whom we have in common. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so again, this whole idea of of the nature of the church is something of a family. But the next thing Paul brings out about the church, notice what he says here in, um, again, in, um, in verse 15. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Oh, what a definition for the church. 
the church of the living God. And you have to understand that Paul is again purposely kind of interacting with the culture at Ephesus at that time. You may or may not know that in Ephesus, in the ancient world, it had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, that temple to uh, Diana. And again, when we see some of the recreations of this, it was a very impressive structure. There's just no two ways about it. If, I, if my memory serves me right, the, that the temple itself was set on a hill and the temple was constructed of, a, I think it was either I heard one, uh, one dictionary say 121, uh, another dictionary said 127 massive pillars. And these pillars were 60 feet high. But that really wasn't the prominent feature of this temple of Diana. Now, there were all kinds of things that went on there that we're not going to discuss here now that have nothing to do with how a person ought to conduct himself in the house of God. But this, in, this, in this massive structure, it wasn't just the pillars that really made for a visible impression. What really made for a visible impression was the massive roof that the pillars upheld. This marble roof. And on that marble roof, what we saw, what was, what was uh, predominant, was the image of Diana. And so the pillars were supporting the roof because it was the roof that was to be seen. Now, when Paul says to the church of Jesus Christ, number one, the nature of the church is that it is familial. Number two, the nature of the church is that it is the church of the living God. It is not the church or the assembling together of people who assemble together in the name of a dead or non-existent deity. They gather in the name of the living God. This concept of God as a living God is very important in the scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see this concept of God as the living God related to us in at least three ways. And number one, we see it related to us by way of victory. It is the living God who gives victory to his people over his enemies. Number two, we see, uh, we, we, we see this, this concept of uh, God as the living God by way of affection that the psalmist writes in, in affectionate terms when he talks about God as the living God. Number three, this, this, this title of God as the living God has reference to his rightful lordship over the believer. Listen to the passages that bring out each of these ideas. Number one, the first idea connected with the God as the living God is this idea of victory. Uh, in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10, Joshua said to the Israelites, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will surely dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the, the Perizzite, the Gergeshite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Again, Joshua's words, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will surely dispossess from before you. Now again, we're not on a... We're not on a, 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 a a program of conquest, so to speak. We're not taking over land. But what I want you to see by way of victory that's given here in the Old Testament is the victory that is given to the Israelites in the Old Testament ought to parallel the victory that God has given to us over every inch of our soul. So that there are, if I can use the, the picture, there are no Gergeshites remaining. There are no Perizzites remaining. That in every aspect of our life, this part of our soul, every part of our soul has been conquered by the Lordship of Christ. Why? Because God is the living God. He's able to do that. We see also by way of affection in Psalm 42, verse 2, David writes this, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 
When shall I come and appear before God? You see, because God is a living God, because he interacts personally with the soul, great affections are drawn out for God. And God does this by way of his living nature. Just like, again, the, the affection that we have. We, there's a great difference between an affection for a thing and an affection for a person, isn't there? And the affections that God generates within us is because he is this living God. Thirdly, we see submission all brought into this idea of God as the living God. Jeremiah says this, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. The very mention of God as the everlasting king brings before our minds submission to his lordship. And so again, when Paul says that the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, again, he is emphasizing God giving victory to his people, God stirring affections in his people, God, again, bringing about the the submission uh, in the lives of every one of his people. All this under the term of God as the living God. Many more things can be said, but I think those things will suffice for now. So again, Paul describes the church then as a family, and Paul describes the church as the church of the living God. And and this, this repetition of the word church, we should say it this way then, so that Paul describes the church as the family of God, the 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 family of God, the possession of God Himself. So the church has the idea of God calling out of the world a people for Himself. And because of that, we say things like this. Who is it that owns the church? God owns the church. It is the church of the living God. It's not the church of the pastor. It's not the church of the board. It's not the church of the denomination. It's the church of the living God. And the church of the living God, by way of its nature, is set before us here. This brings us kind of theologically to to, uh, something of an interesting um, uh, piece of, 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 of information that we should be aware of. And that's essentially this, that when we come to consider the nature of the church, what is the church? Uh, What is its nature? What is its function? One of the things that we often find are discussions along these lines, that what the church is by way of its identity, there are particular attributes that mark out a church. So that a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, will have these three attributes. Number one, there is an essential unity to the church. There is a sense in which we talk about the the unity of the church, not only at the local level, but truly at the local level. But there is a sense in which this church is a part of that larger body of believers gathered everywhere throughout the world and even in heaven right now, praising and giving glory to the living God through Jesus Christ. There is a unity to the people of God. Christ is the head and we are his body. That's why it's an offense when anybody should say, when, they, when any man should put, him, put, should put himself in the place of being head of the church. There's only one head to the church, and that's Jesus Christ. So there is unity there. The second thing that we see by way of the church, by way of an attribute or a characteristic feature, is that the church is known not only for its unity, but the church is to be known for its holiness as well. This is vital. This is vital, not only by way of the technical definition of the word holiness, which means to be set apart for a particular use. If I, if I, can, if I can illustrate it this morning, in a sense, in a sense these, 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 these instruments here, uh, these, um, uh, uh, these, um, these utensils, what's the word I'm looking for? These, I'm sorry? Well, not the elements. What's holding the elements? The, uh, the plate. And, and in a sense, those are holy. 
Not in the sense that there's a particular uh, magical sanctity about them, but in the sense that they are set apart for a particular reason. I'll illustrate it even more simply. When I'm here on a Wednesday eating my lunch, I don't use those plates. Because those plates are set apart for a specific reason. That makes them, quote unquote, holy. And so in that sense of the word, the people of God are set apart as holy. But you also know that the word holy has moral overtones to it. And so that the sanctity that the people of God possess is a true moral conforming of their natures to Jesus Christ. And so your neighbors, when they see and understand and hear you talking, they hear and see and see and and understand something's different. And that difference is the piety, the godliness, the sanctity that you bring to all of life. So the characteristic features of the church are its unity. The second is its holiness or its sanctity. The third is its universality or what sometimes is called its Catholicity. What do we mean by Catholicity? We mean this, that there is that there is embraced by the church of Jesus Christ certain fundamental universal truths. And those truths are those truths are, are those truths are particularly set before us here in the 16th verse. Truths concerning the lordship of Jesus Christ. Truths concerning the lordship of his incarnation. Truths concerning the reality of his resurrection. Truths concerning the reality of the preaching of the gospel. Truths concerning the reality of his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. These are identifying uh, identifying truths that all the people of God throughout all the ages have professed and believed. And that's why we have to come back to this passage of scripture. If the church as the pillar and ground, we're getting into the function of the church. If if the church as the pillar and ground does not have on those pillars the truth of Jesus Christ, it is not a true church. As simple as that. I have to say, in one sense, I'm glad when I go through some of these some of these old towns here, you know, in here in Massachusetts, that some of these churches, which are no longer churches, gladly don't call themselves churches anymore. They call themselves societies. Well, that's what they are because they're not church. If they're not preaching the truth, truth of the gospel, they're not churches. And call themselves what they want. And so again, we have to understand, we have to hear these things. So these three three attributes of the church, sometimes they are referred to as. Um, as again, the three, the three marks of the church, and sometimes they are summed up uh, as, again in, in that statement uh, that's found in the Apostles' Creed, one holy apostolic church. Now again, that's not saying that it's not being, it shouldn't be confused with Roman Catholicism. It's just that there is this unity of the people of God. There is this uh, uh, Catholicity of the people of God. There is this uh, participation in the one truth of the gospel. Now, not only do we see these three attributes of the church, What we also find is that there are usually identifying marks as well. And the attribute and the mark, they're they're somewhat similar. But there is something of a distinction that I want to make here, and it's this. That usually a true church is understood, number one, by the true preaching of the gospel. In other words, a true church cannot be a true church if it does not preach the true gospel. If it sets before you a man-centered system of salvation, it's not preaching the true gospel. If it sets before you a works-orientated view of salvation, it's not preaching the gospel. If it sets before you uh, Jesus Christ plus this or plus that or plus that, it's not preaching the gospel. So it's not a true church. It doesn't have the true gospel. 
The second characteristic or the second mark we would say is this, is the right or the proper administration of the ordinances. Now this becomes very important. We're having our Lord's Supper here today. And what we will do by the grace of God, and we say this with all humility, is that by the grace of God, we will open up the word of God. We will read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we will get, we will distribute among the people of God those elements which represent for us, not become, but which represent for us the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will enter into spiritual communion with him. It's a beautiful thing. And should we do this wrongly or should we fail to do that, we wouldn't, in the true sense of the word, really be a church by way of its identifying marks. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be properly carried out in the church for church to be a true church. The third thing that we see is this, is that a true church will also have with it not only the proper and right preaching of the gospel, not only will it administer properly the ordinances that Christ has ordained, it will also it will also enact church discipline when necessary. And by way of church discipline, there are certain things that will be, be that will be presupposed in that. Number one, what will be presupposed is a right understanding of doctrine. Again, the right preaching of the gospel. There will be a standard against which uh, 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 life and, and morals are, are evaluated. There will be, there will be an ordained uh, leadership within the church. There will be those who will have oversight. There will be those who will have to make decisions. And so again, all these things bring to us this idea that in the church of Jesus Christ, there are those ways by which individuals ought to conduct themselves. And if they do not conduct themselves in a certain way as the scripture lays out, they are to be disciplined and removed from the church. That's why, just look down one verse from where we're at. That's why Paul says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrine of devils. Now the point is, is Paul saying that those people should remain in the church? No, they're a function of discipline. It is to keep the church of Jesus Christ pure, not only in doctrine, but in morals as well. And so oftentimes, and we're going to see this when we, when we get into our series of uh, sermons on, on Second Peter, so oftentimes these false teachers, they not only bring in defective views of the person of Christ or of the doctrine of salvation, they bring along with that defective morality as well. And again, these, these false teachers are truly a blight on the church of Jesus Christ. So we're looking again at the nature of the church. By way of the nature of the church, as I said before, it is, uh, it, it is the household of God, that fam family element. It is the church of the living God. But now we move to the function of the church. And what is the function of the church? Well, that brings us here to verse, uh, uh, verse 15 again in the second part here. Uh, that, thou mayest, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And here we come to the function. The pillar and ground of truth. In one sense, this explains the nature, but in another sense, I, I like to put it under the idea of a function, uh, the function of the church, because again, we see something happening here. And what Paul is doing once again is he is purposely bringing to the minds of, uh, of Timothy as he is in Ephesus as he would see in the center of Ephesus, that magnificent, from a human standpoint, that magnificent temple that was set on a high place with that splendid roof being upheld, however many tons it must have been. Paul was reminding Timothy that the church is not a standing temple to error and falsehood, but the, but the church is a pillar that upholds the glory of Jesus Christ. 
What we see here is very important then by way of the church's function. That what the church is not is that the church is not the source or origin of truth. That's very important to understand. That's why when we did our sermon a few weeks back on on 2 Timothy 3.16 and we talked about the scriptures as being God-breathed and you might remember that I purposely used the phrase that the scriptures had that unique quality of being breathed out from God. And I said at that time that there is nothing else that we see in the scripture that has that unique quality. While the church belongs to God and while the church is the bride of Jesus Christ and while on this earth right now God values nothing more than his truth and his church, the church is a custodian to the things that God has given to it. The church plays a ministerial function with the word of God, not a magisterial function. It is not giving the word of God in the sense that it originates from it. It is upholding the word of God. That's the point of what the church is to do. The pillar, again, the idea, you understand what a pillar is. You, you would, we don't see them here, but again, we don't really have pillars in the sense of pillars. But if we did, you would understand that the pillar is playing a very significant role. It has an important function. It's holding something up. The foundation is either that which it rests on, or some are, some commentators are saying that that the that the support here has to do more with like in, in when we see our old cathedrals that has the the walls and then what's known as the as the flying buttresses coming out, so that there is a support on the side. Either way, what we are seeing is this: is the church must protect and proclaim the truth of the gospel. That's the function of the church. You know, in our day, we, 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 we go to work and we sign up with organizations and they give us these, these, these papers and, and they tell us what their mission statement is. Well, this is the mission statement of the church. It is to be the support and it is to be the pillar and ground of truth, not the source of truth, not the origin of truth, but the support of truth. And therefore, again, this whole idea of the support of truth becomes very important on an institutional level, on a congregational level, and on a personal level as well. On a congregational level, what does it mean for this church to be a pillar in support of the truth? What it means is this, is that this church in this pulpit and throughout our various ministries must hold up the truth of the gospel. It must have clear and true visions and understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And strike that word vision. It must have a clear understanding, doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. It must set forth Christ as he's presented to us in the gospel. It must know the reality of man's sinful nature. Know the reality of God's desire to save sinners. It must set these things forth in clarity. It must protect them from any error. And so that's why, if I can say this, and I'll say this in advance, so, so if the time comes along, you won't, be, you won't be offended. There will be times in my interaction with you, I'm going to have to say, well, no, that's really not right. That's not wrong. And you have the right to say to me, Pastor, is that really what the Scripture says there? You have the right and in a sense the responsibility to do that. And I have the responsibility before God to make sure that what I'm proclaiming, I'm proclaiming it in truth. This very moment that I'm in right now, why will one day give an account to the living God? And so God forbid that I should fail to say when it needs to be said. That's not what the scriptures say. Or God forbid that I should fail when it needs to be said. Hey, brother or sister, you, you're, you're, you're getting it right here. And so again, this idea of the church by way, by way of the congregation must again be this pillar and support of truth. But when we look at it in our personal lives, this has implications as well. 
What does it mean for the church to be the support, the pillar and support of the truth if you are here elderly and maybe in the last chapters, plural, chapters of your life? What does it mean? What means this? It means that the faith that you have professed throughout your life is the faith that you will hold on to at the end of life. It means that the faith that you have professed to this point will be the faith that you hold on and lose no grip on. It means the faith that you have professed will not faint within you, but rather will steadily grow. And it may only be able to be that which you fall back and rest upon rather than that which you can actively develop anymore. But that's what it means to be a support and stay of the truth. You will not defect from that faith which God has planted within your soul. You will not defect from that faith which God has once delivered to the saints. What does it mean for those of us who are in active, our still active period of life? What it means is this, is that whatever else God has called us to by way of vocation, that we will not leave off that responsibility to in our circumstances uphold and support the truth. So that in my little work situation there, there I am trying to live out the gospel. There I am having ears open for an open door to say something for the cause of Christ. Making sure that in the, that when the, the conversation turns along religious lines, I'm not so and I'm not saying this dumb in the sense of stupid, I'm saying dumb in the sense of not being able to speak, that I'm not so dumb that I can't speak up for the cause of Christ when falsehood is uttered. May God give us grace to be that way, to be able to say no, to be able to say this is what God has declared. And maybe for those who are young, what does that mean? It means that you make sure that this faith that you are being raised in is a faith that you are personally embracing. A faith that you may not understand in all of its fullness yet. And let me give you some encouragement. None of us understand in all of its fullness. That's why it's the mystery of godliness. We'll get to that here shortly. But it's a faith that you make sure that you are embracing yourself. That you are holding on to. That you are asking God to show you in more and more of an experiential way what this thing is all about. So this is again the church. At a corporate level, the church on an individual basis what it means to uphold and support the truth. But now we get to the message of the, ch- uh, of the, of the church. And in one sense, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to go on any further here, but we have to get to this point. Uh, and the reason why I'm hesitant is because this 16th verse is a truly phenomenal verse. Whatever was there by way of importance in the 14th and the 15th verse, showing the nature of, and the function of the church, this 16th verse is even more important. Because this 16th verse identifies for us the true message of the church. And notice what we see, what Paul says in verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. Now again, you're probably reading your Bibles, and if you don't have the King James Bible, you're probably seeing something, a little bit of a different in, difference in language here. And, and we need to get to that. And again, this is why I'm saying it's, it's almost difficult to, to, to fully open up this passage of Scripture in the limited time that I have here now. But what I want you to see first and foremost is this. Did you notice how that Paul seamlessly moves from the church's function to the church's message? 
The church's function is one and it's singular. It is setting forth the person of Jesus Christ. And if any church that claims to be a church does not set forth the person of Christ and the gospel, it is no church. I'm not trying. I'm not saying that to set up this kind of this 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 kind of a, a identity of us versus them. I'm not. I'm not doing it for that. But we do need to understand that there is a proper way in which the church is defined, and it's defined here in its message. So when the church. When we speak about the, 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 the church as the pillar and ground of truth, it's not that the church is originating truth. It is staying faithful to that message of Jesus Christ. Paul moves right into the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And then you notice what Paul says here. He says, and without controversy. And what he means by this is essentially this. There is no question that what I am going to say is the essentials of Christianity. There is no controversy here. No reason to ask questions. If you want to know what the centerpiece of Christianity is, this is what it is right here. And so that's why this passage of Scripture then becomes so, so vitally important. Well, I've been preaching now for 45 minutes, and I am, I am almost in a quandary as to what to do, to whether or not I should carry on, which will probably take at least another 15 minutes or to close it off here. Let me see if I can do some justice to this passage of Scripture. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Again, Paul emphasizing, there's no question here as to where the center of the Christian message is all about. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. The next thing I want you to see and understand is this, is that Paul says the mystery of godliness. Well, this is a very... um, this is a very uh, appealing phrase, I might put it to you. That it's one of those, it's one of those phrases that kind of you hear and it sticks in your mind. It has a contrasting uh, phrase uh, found in the scriptures as well, which is known as the mystery of iniquity. What's the mystery of iniquity? And again, we're not going to open that up uh, here and now. But what I want you to see by way of the mystery is that something is that um, is that mystery in the scripture is a very very important concept. And mystery in the scripture, as I said earlier, does not mean something that befuddles us or something that confuses us. But what it means is that it is that which previous to its revelation was unknown by God. It was unknown, excuse me, unknown by man, nor could have been known by man. That there are truly and clearly revealed truths. There are truths that are revealed to us only in the scripture. And I'm saying this to you. The revelation of who and what you are before God in one sense really only comes into clarity through the revelation that God has given in scripture. Certainly, certainly God's provision of a savior for you in the person of Jesus Christ comes to us only in the scripture. So a mystery is that which was concealed in the past, but now is made known uh, through the word of God. Now it's interesting that there are a number of other aspects that we see here about mystery that I think are, are very important for us to understand. Again, a mystery is that which is unknown and concealed, but is now revealed. Secondly, in the second place, that is called the mystery in Scripture, which, however clear it may be in the manifestation of it, yet the reasons of it are hidden to us. That's what, that's what allows us, if I can put it this way, to make a connection between the biblical word for mystery and the use of the word mystery in our day. What is, quote-unquote, if I can say it this way, mysterious about these scriptural mysteries is not that they have not been revealed. They have been. 
It's the reason for them we can't fathom. That's why John Newton could have sung about mysterious grace as much as he did about amazing grace. Because the bottom line is this. How is it and why is it that God saved me? How is it and why is it that God saved the Jewish nation? How is it and why is it that God turned the, uh, the gospel to the Gentiles? When I was looking up this word for godliness, it's very interesting. Uh, it occurs 15 times in the New Testament. Godliness. Again, beautiful word. What does it mean? Has, the, has that idea of personal piety. There's a sense in which godliness is the blending, the blending together of gospel truth and gospel holiness. There is a sense in which the doctrines of Christianity are not only understood, but the doctrines of Christianity are become beloved. The, gospel, the doctrines of Christianity become that which is manifested. That's what, that's what godliness is. Piety is a very good substitution for the word, but we're going to use the word godliness. And the word is used 15 times in the New Testament. Nine times in, uh, the, the, in this epistle of 1 Timothy. So it's a very important word for what Paul is saying to Timothy by way of what the church should look like. That brings us back to our first point. There is a way in which we conduct ourselves in the house of God. And it's with godliness. It's with piety. It's with holiness. But again, this idea... Of, of godliness and when we think about this and what, the, and what the mystery is this the mystery becomes wrapped up in two things in this passage of scripture the mystery centers first on the fact that the eternal son of God came into humanity at a point of time and took on a human nature mystery of mysteries you see this is why the, this is why the unsaved world they, they get jammed up with this this is why religious scholars will interact with the Bible and they will say everything they can about the person of Jesus of Nazareth, but they will never attribute to him what the scriptures attribute to him, which is that though he existed in the form of God, Philippians 2, thought of not Robert to be equal with God, but humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. Why? In order that he might save you and me. So our religious scholars, what do they do? They try to, they try to build up the humanity of Christ, but they never break the barrier. They never, they, they never penetrate into the truth of the person of Christ because it's not revealed to them. For them, a mystery is that which is still secret because they've not opened their hearts to the teaching of Scripture or to the ministry of the, uh, of the Spirit of God in the Scripture. And so again, that's the first mystery. And that's why Paul says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now he goes here in the King James, God was manifest in the flesh. Your translations, if you have newer translations, will say either who was manifest in the flesh or which was manifest in the flesh. Let me just say this very quickly. I, I spend a, 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 a quite a bit of time uh, trying to put this all together for you, but I'll just put it uh, very simply. There is much by way of evidence to retain the traditional reading of God manifest in the flesh. Many good uh, uh, commentators and many good scholars and preachers that we would look to for help in this, in, in this regard sometimes will uh, go to the idea that it should be who is manifest in the flesh. And the idea that they're trying to retain in this is essentially this, that when it says who was manifest in the flesh, it can't be a reference to a mere man because for a man to be manifest in the flesh is no mystery. It, and it, it can't be an angel that was manifest in the flesh because it wouldn't be a mystery that he was that an angel was seen of angels. The point that's being made here, and again, this is why I say that there is that there is evidence for the traditional reading here. The, the point that's being made here, mystery of mysteries, God manifest in the flesh. And that's the first mystery that we see there. But do you know what the second mystery is? 
And this is where Paul is leading. The second mystery is the ability of gospel truth to produce piety within the hearts of the people of God. That's the point that's being made here. And so when the Apostle Paul says the following, without controversy, great is the mystery of, uh, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the secret of piety, we might say. God manifest in the flesh. How is it that sinners are made holy? You know, you go back to this word godliness. Godliness, 15 times in the, in the, in the New Testament. The, the following words, godliness, ungodliness, godly, ungodly, appear together 58 times in the scripture. And probably one of the most, uh, one of the most eye-opening passages by way of ungodliness is in that little passage in, uh, in Jude, I think it's verse uh, 14. All those ungodly sinners and the, and the ungodly deeds that they have done in the ungodly, four times are called ungodly. And you think, boy, this thing of ungodliness, if godliness is personal piety in the soul, then ungodliness must be that, that, that being averse to the very influence of God. It must be that principle of wickedness and, and, and unrighteousness that work in the children of disobedience. And Peter says this, if the righteous scarcely, scarcely be saved, where will the ungodly appear? And then you read through the scripture all these words for ungodly. You, you know, uh, again, how, again, over, over and over again, the ungodly this and the ungodly that. And then you come to a passage of scripture that Christ died for the ungodly. That's the gospel. That's, that's the roof on the pillar. That's what we set forth. And when you have churches in our day which will not say to sinners that sin is sin, they cease to be a church. Let them be called societies. But they're not a church of Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I have to say what the scriptures say here. And so again, all these things, these two great mysteries, again, the mystery of godliness in the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of, the godliness, the mystery of godliness in, in that each and every one of these specific actions that are attributed to Christ produce godliness in us. Listen to this. God manifests in the flesh, justified in the spirit. You know what that means? It means that the spirit of God vindicated everything that Jesus Christ did and said. You know, the statement goes something like this. If Jesus Christ would have remained in the grave, God would have been pronouncing a curse upon him. But when the Father raised the Son on the third day, that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, uh, 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 declared to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection. You know, he talks about Jesus Christ, the Son of David, declared to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection. Now, he wasn't made the Son of God. He was declared to be what he was. When Jesus Christ came on this earth, what did he do? If, I can, if you'll allow me the picture, what did he do? He pulled over himself the veil of humanity so that his glory was not seen. And there he lived again his life working out the redemption for sinners like you and me. And then there he was in the grave. And what did God do? God raised him up from the dead. Why? I like to put it this way. On Easter Sunday, no such thing as Easter, on the first resurrection Sunday, God himself preached the sermon. And the sermon wasn't in words. The sermon was in the act of the resurrection. God declared something. He declared his son to be the son of God with power. And so again, vindicated in the spirit. That's what that means. Jesus Christ was justified in all that he said. God is making a declaration here. God is saying that everything that Jesus said and did had his approval. Seen of angels. 
Every, every element of our Lord's earthly ministry. There they were in the incarnation. There they were in, in the temptation. There, you, there, 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 there was an angel there assisting, assisting him uh, in, his, um, in his time in the garden. There was, there, there was angels there, there when the stone was removed away. But you know where you don't see angels in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ? When he was on the cross. Why? Because he suffered alone for you and for me. No assistance in that whole work. He bore you, the weight of your sins and the weight of my sins. So again, seen of angels preached unto the Gentiles. This is a mystery. This is a mystery that the gospels, that, excuse me, that, that the Gentiles should hear the gospel message and that the Gentiles should receive. It's a strange thing, isn't it, sometimes? I mean, we don't always put it that way. But there you are preaching to your friends. And some think you're just flat out maybe, maybe a nice person, but they don't want to have anything to do with your religion. But others believe. We don't understand. And let me say this to you. If you ever, in your own experience, think you can find a reason as to why God saved you, you've lost the mystery of godliness. There is a sense in which the mystery of godliness will always come back to me. I'm saved. I'm the one who's going to be spared hell after what I've done. Oh, the mystery of godliness, you see. Preached. Under the Gentiles. Oh, the proclamation, the, the function of the church to preach, to preach, to preach, preach unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. Again, commentators really have a, you know, they, they do uh, good work here. How is this little, is this, a, is this a hymn? Is it a creedal statement? Now, what's interesting about that is this, is that if it's a hymn, what it means is that it is already incorporated into the, into the worship of the church prior to the writing of this epistle. Now that's significant. Because what it means is that prior to the writing of this epistle, Jesus Christ was being worshipped as God manifest in the flesh. That's significant. And the reason why it's significant is this. Because our religious unbelieving scholars say things like this. While the followers of Jesus Christ had to do something with Jesus of Nazareth. And so what they did is they engaged in this kind of in this kind of hero worship on steroids. So what they did is they made Jesus of Nazareth God. No. If this is a hymn, that means it was part of the structure of worship already before Paul wrote. If it was a creed, the same idea. It would have been that body of information that was given in order that one Christian might identify with another. In order that there might be, you are you remember, that unity of faith, that Catholicity, that idea that the church preaches one thing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so again, that is the great structure that the church upholds. And should a church fail to uphold that, that, that church, that so-called church, is no longer a church in the true sense of the word. So then, as we close, I ask you uh, these, these, these following questions. Number one, I ask you this. Do you have the doctrinal clarity that revelation allows you to have? Do you possess that grasp of biblical truth that a written revelation from God allows you? That have you taken that gift that you have by way of being made in the image of God 
and being gifted with rationality, have you taken that and have you applied that to the rational revelation that he's given in his word? And have you learned the doctrines of Christianity? Are you able to say with Paul what the great mystery of godliness is? <clears throat> Can you say that, yeah, <clears throat> that, that it's not just about me gathering with a group of people at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, but it's about Jesus Christ incarnated Jesus Christ crucified Jesus Christ raised Jesus Christ exalted to the right hand of the Father have you embraced those things do you know those things but again if we understand what godliness is it's not just our doctrinal information is it it's the affections of the heart for those truths it's the tug of the soul to know more of those things this is piety this is the godliness that we are called to and so I ask, you to question, I ask you the question, has your doctrinal clarity led to personal piety? Has, the, has your profession of Christ led to holiness of life? You see, this is what it is to know the mystery of godliness. This is what it is to participate in the mystery of godliness.